title of my message this morning is Fight. It's a very strange title for this passage, but this passage has wrecked me this last week. Caught me by surprise, and you'll understand why in a second. The reason why I'm calling it Fight is because I believe um, it is time, even past time, to get angry about something. A, have a fury, have a rational fury, start fighting. I think it's time, even past time, that we have a new determination to no longer tolerate something. And I would say it's even past time to show no mercy for our enemy. Offer them no quarter, no assistance, no pity. It's time to defeat our enemy. And you're probably saying, well, what enemy is that? Are you getting political on us? No, no, I'm not talking politics. So do we go after the people that argue with us online? Is that who we get mad at? No, no, no. That's not our enemy. I'm going to call our enemy OAS, or our odious, arrogant self. Our smelly, prideful old man, old woman that lives inside of us. I use the word odious because there's something strange about a human being. It is this. Human beings don't mind their own smell. They actually kind of like it. You know the dad who eats a lot of garlic and toots a little bit? He kind of likes it. Why do we like our own smell? It's kind of gross. Other people notice it, but we're okay with it. And often we can just bask in our own moral smell. The second word is arrogant. There's this pride that we have about ourselves. The philosopher Nietzsche says, we are beyond good and evil. There's a point where some of us feel we don't need to come underneath moral laws or ideas or codes because we're beyond it, because I'm right, my perspective is right, and I don't need to listen to anybody. That's arrogance. So this odious, arrogant self is inside of me. This odious, arrogant self lives inside of you, and they hide. We don't really notice him that often. I don't smell him because I'm used to him. He convinces me almost daily of my own self-importance, of my own goodness. I'm good. Better than most people. Better than that guy over there. I go to sermons, glad they're hearing it. But me? I'm okay. I'm good. And then I read this passage. And this passage shocked me. Truthfully, we've been going through. Uh, we've been going through the Matthew 13 on the parables, and then we come to the very end of it, and it's one of those verses that it moves along the narrative. You don't really notice it; it's kind of a uh, filler verse. And I was reading it this week, and it stopped me dead in my tracks, and I started smelling myself, like, oh, there's something wrong with me, with all of us. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it in the NLT. I'm going to describe the situation. I'm going to bring out one question, two observations, and one warning. At first, you won't say, you won't notice anything about this passage, but if you take your time on it and milk it and meditate on it, you won't, I, I hope that you will be sick of yourself. You'll see what I mean. Starting in verse 53, Matthew 13. 
When Jesus had finished telling those stories and illustrations, the parables, he left that part of the country. So he was preaching around the Sea of Galilee. He's preaching by the water. He's probably preaching even in the city of Capernaum. And after he's done, verse 54 says, he returned back home. That's what the ESV says. Or he returned to Nazareth, his hometown. Probably 40 mile away walk. Half a day's journey to get back home. But he went back home to his hometown where he grew up with his disciples going to see his mom his family and he teaches there and it says when he taught there in the synagogue which would be like the local church everyone was amazed and they said where does he get this wisdom and the power to do miracles and in verse 55 says then they scoffed He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? And they were deeply offended. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. And so he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief. A lot of times, so this is a filler verse. I'm jumping from chapter 13, the great parables, and then we're going to go on to continue his ministry in chapter 14. So he's moving the action along. He just got done preaching in Galilee, went hometown. He didn't listen to him, but let's just keep going on. No, 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 wait a minute. Let's stop on that. Let's stop on that. Some scholars will really focus on verse 55. He had four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sister. So that mean Mary had more kids? Yes. Ooh, let's talk about the implications of that. I don't want to talk about that. It's true, but let's talk more about something that will cut to the heart. At the end of this portion, verse 57, Jesus says basically an Old Testament proverb, which is a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown. Most scholars will say the message of this passage is familiarity breeds content. And they, the, word, the idea of this phrase means excessive knowledge or close association to someone or something or some subject leads to just a lack of respect. So they'll say that's what it's about. I don't think that's what this is about. Kind of is about that, but I think it goes a little bit deeper. And I need to get you to think through this a second. Because when it says familiarity breeds contempt, normally we, it's kind of like, so it's like being annoyed at your brother or sister when they leave toothpaste in the sink. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. No, this is something different. Because we're talking about Jesus here. And I want you to imagine a second, this scenario. Imagine you're sitting here at church on any given Sunday. You're kind of tired. You just got, you just got, out of the car door, pulling your kids out by their ears, you're taking off your coat, you walk in the foyer, there's a couple people you don't want to talk to, so you act like you got a text on your phone, get slip in, I know, I see you, I know, I know what you do. You sit down and you cross your arms and you lead back and you say, oh, I'm tired, I hope the music's good today. Oh, no, they're singing that song again. And then who's preaching? Oh, Pastor Chris, I, I hope he's funny today. Wasn't funny last week. He's kind of boring last week. 
I know, I know how it goes. I hear you. I, can he- I got these secret ears. I know what you say. So I stand up and I say, your lucky day. I'm not preaching today. Good. Woo. So who's preaching? The Son of God is preaching this morning. He's going to come in the flesh. So out of those two doors comes Jesus himself, walks up here and starts preaching. How do you feel about that? Personally, I would, I would love to hear Jesus preach. I would love to hear him preach. But then he opens up to Matthew, and some of you are like, man, Matthew's a long book. When are we going to get out of Matthew, Jesus? I've... And then Jesus starts teaching some things that I don't like. Well, I don't know. I don't know about this. Because the way they responded is often the way we respond. When Jesus came, they were amazed. <laughs> he did miracles, but then all of a sudden they say, but wait a minute, isn't this, I, this is Mary's son, and you know what they said about Mary, don't you? You know what you say about a woman who had a child out of wedlock? She's a, that's this guy? I know, I know his brothers, they're carpenters. We're letting a blue-collar, calloused hand, not that intelligent guy preach to us? You're kidding. And we know his sister, she lives in, they all live in town. We've been to some, you know, tea parties with them, and man, all they do is talk about how they, their brother's a god. <laughs> like, who do they think they are? We kind of act the same way when we come to church. We have this contempt for Jesus. Imagine though when he, imagine they are offended at the person who spun the universe into being Orion. He made the Teton Mountains with his fingertips. He breathed and he formed the Grand Canyon. He's the guy that gave the voice to like Odell and Pavarotti or even a Whitney Houston. Jesus did that. And yet we're more impressed by that stuff than him. I think after a while, we'd go grow bored too. Our amazement would turn to contempt. How do I, how do I know that? Because I, show, I personally show a lot of contempt for this book. Ah, Got to go through Matthew. Can't we get done with this? I think what has happened to us is I think we are so quickly satisfied. So I have one first question. My first question is this, based on this passage. How could Jesus, the one who is the Son of God, be so offensive to them? How could he be so offensive? How could they be, as it says here in the NLT verse 55, they scoffed at him? I think I know, I think I know why. I think I know why. And I have two reasons why. How could Jesus be so offensive? And that word offensive is the Greek word scandalon. He's a stumbling block to us. He sometimes really offends a lot of us to where we're done with God. How could he be so offensive? I think the first reason is because Jesus just does not stay in his lane. He needs to stay in his lane. So here he comes to town. He's the carpenter's son, and in those days, you do what your father did. So Jesus, to them, is a carpenter. But wait a minute. 
He thinks he can now be a rabbi and get a following and teach things about heaven. He's the carpenter's son. Who does he think he is? Stay in your lane. Jesus, stay in your lane. You think you can talk about gender issues in our culture? Stay in your lane. Jesus, why don't you just give us nice psalms we can put on harlequin cards or, you know, you can send on the internet to make everybody feel good. But Jesus, stay out of politics. Stay out of the LGBTQ issue. Will you stay out of it? Who do you think you are? And stay out of my bedroom, Jesus. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane with what I'm entertaining myself with. Okay, so what if I get on social media for 25 hours out of the day? Why do you got to convict me of that stuff? Stay out of my head. I'm going to watch what I want to watch. Oh, you want me to be kind to my husband or my wife, my kids? I like to yell at them, Jesus. Don't tell me what to do. Stay in your land. I think the reason why people get so offended at Jesus is because he meddles. He convicts you, and he says, can you be a Christian today, please? Can you act like one? Jesus, I don't want to hear it. It's, it's interesting. Some people, I've had this a number of times, some people really have told me when I talk about like gender issues or LGBT issues, that's not the place for the pulpit. What we should do when people come in here is just encourage people. So Jesus didn't talk about marriage, like how a man should leave his father and mother and be united to them, where it's good for a child to have a mom and a dad. He didn't talk about that? Well, it kind of can be political. So Jesus didn't talk anything about, you know, not judging each other. Well, what about the different identities? So Jesus didn't Jesus say, judge not, lest ye be judged? Didn't Jesus talk about in give it to Paul to talk about really um, you don't work? Well, don't get so political, Jesus. Stay out of it. Stay out of it. And if I want to curse and use the F word, let me curse and use the F word. Didn't Paul say something about let your lips be holy? Ah, stay in your lane. I think that's why Jesus offends. Because he's not just saying nice words up here. Those words come down to where I walk. I think the second reason why Jesus offends is because, you know, Jesus puts on airs. He, here, he's a carpenter. For heaven's sake, he's a carpenter, and now he thinks he's smarter than the rabbis. Do you know he confronted the rabbis? And he said, you're wrong to the rabbis? And he called the rabbis some snakes, a brood of vipers? He's just a carpenter. He doesn't have the education of those guys. He puts on airs even to the point where he wants people to worship him, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is telling us that he's the only way to heaven? Who does he think he is? That he wants me to worship him. He's, he's an okay option. He's one of the options. But the only option, he's putting on airs again, thinking I should bow to him. You know, there's a lot of other religions out there. Who does he think he is? Because honestly, uh, saying you're the son of God who created the heavens and there's no other way to the Father but through him is very, very arrogant, if you ask me. That's why he's so offensive. 
There's this uh, very interesting article. I like C.S. Lewis as a way of painting pictures for me, and there's one picture he paints. I think it's one of the best illustrations he ever gave. And it's in one of his books called God in the Dock, and I'll explain it to you. It talks about the way man used to view God to how man has viewed God in the last hundred years during the modern time, the human age, the age of the machine and industrial revolution. He says the mind of man has switched. In the old days... God was this high judge, and man would be in the dock, meaning man was before the judge, having to give an account for himself, and God would judge him, whether he's worthy of either heaven, eternity, righteousness, or not. But he said something happened in our minds when we got a little bit smarter, when we thought we became more scientific, we switched places. Man now is the judge, and God's in the dock. And he said, we're, ni- we're a nice judge. As long as God can give us answers for why he allows suffering, or if he can give us some, you know, some nice things after we pray, we might judge him fairly. However, the, the issue is, we are now the judges. We now know more. We are better. And he said, just that mind shift has changed the world. Some people these days go to church, and when they go to church, they they actually think they're doing God a favor. Like, look, God, I showed up. Aren't you happy now? As if he needs us to come to church. It's actually just the opposite. You need to come to church because he's everything. It's It's a mindset. I think that's why people get so offensive, because Jesus is God. And he's on the throne. And we're in the dock. So I think we have thought that way because we've forgotten two things. And I think the people in this story have forgotten two things. Those people who are sitting with contempt. They once were amazed, now they are upset. They forgot two things. And here's the first thing they forgot. Two observations. They forgot that grace, what I mean by grace, is God's goodness, his beauty, his blessing, his wonder, his ability, his power, his majesty, his strength, his kindness, his tolerance, his patience, his joy is undeserved. You don't deserve an ounce of it. You don't deserve any of it. And we don't believe that anymore. Having Jesus in their presence, the one who made the universe, is speaking, and they have contempt? Like even I've had some people say, when are we going to get out of Matthew? We have Matthew! (laughs) I call it the second generation Christian syndrome. First generation Christians sort of understand what they're saved from. Second generation Christians grow up thinking that's just the way life is. This grace is deserved. It's just the world I float in. No. No. When you think about these people that were in the audience and it says they had contempt and they're offended, what did they want from Jesus that he didn't do? More show? And I think that's the answer. They just want more. They're not satisfied with what they have now. They want more. They just want more. What changed their amazement into boredom? 
What changed their amazement into boredom? Does they think it's due them? They deserve it. What makes us so bored with his word, with the people of God, with the ones we love? Why do we get so bored and nasty? Why are we so nasty? Because of this pride inside of us, this odious, arrogant self. We really believe we deserve more and more and more. I, my wife and I have taught our kids this, uh, I call it, in raising our kids in our house, I call it union-busting parenting. So let's say you own a, a factory in Detroit and you're giving benefits and the union gets together and they want better benefits and want you know, more money, higher wages. And often they'll bring in union busters to say, okay, if you pick it, what's going to happen is we're going to cut your salary and your benefits. So either you appreciate what you have now, if you pick it, we're going to bust it. And so they would wait them out to see who could last longer, the owner or the worker. And I've applied that principle, my wife and I have applied that principle to our kids. So let's say they, they watched Frozen seven times and they want to watch it one more time. And they're whining about, I want to watch it eight times. Guess what? If you whine about it, you don't get to watch it at all tomorrow. That seven times was grace. Or they come up and you give them dessert and they don't like the brownie. They'd rather have more ice cream. Oh, you want more ice cream? How about if I just take that brownie away? They don't understand they are living in a world of kindness right now, in this moment. And union busting is saying, all right, if you don't want it, if you want more, you're not going to get what you have now. Like here, as I was thinking through this, I was thinking of some questions. Why does it take death to appreciate a person's life? Did you ever, did you ever notice how people talk about their loved ones in a funeral? In that one hour greater and more compliments than they've given them for 70 years? Why does it take a funeral to appreciate those that you love? One, that one of the saddest parts is when you, you're trying to have the family share about the, their loved ones at a funeral, and they say to you, as the pastor, and you really don't know them that well, Pastor, why don't you just speak for us? You can say stuff. Why don't we value those we have right now? Why does it take suffering to appreciate health? With a guy whose whole identity was running, and now the doctors told him he can't run. Why does it take suffering to appreciate health? Tom, a quick question for you. Do you feel, so he went through a pretty heavy heart condition this past week, and he's back. Do you feel pretty happy about being here? I saw Tom this morning. I mean, I, was, I couldn't believe it. I said, Tom, what are you doing here? And he goes, I just wanted to be in church this morning because he's alive. Second thing, which kind of goes on the first one, is this. Pride 
pride, arrogance, stifles, curiosity, and wonder. They had the God of the universe speaking in front of them, and instead of leaning in and opening their mouth and going, oh, this is amazing, they folded their arms and went back and go, who does he think he is? Pride does that about Scripture. You mean you want me to read this Bible? You know how hard it is to read that Bible? It's not hard. It's, it's inviting you in to learn it. Just tell me what it is. Cause I, I, I don't know. I've read it through one time. That's enough. There's this. I've done it. I've been there. And it's more than just familiarity breeds contempt. It's arrogance. Wonder is this idea that you guys have another day to live. Like take a deep breath and you can live and you can see your kids. Like my kids are at college. I can't wait to see them again and just listen to their stories. It's what I appreciate about my wife. She loves to hear the stories of her kids because she loves them. We've lost wonder. It's funny, my dad, I thank God for my dad um, in the sense of he... He fostered wonder in our house. He would say, he'd say, why don't you guys go out and play? Have a good time. Dad, it's so boring. He goes, I don't want to hear that word boring. I don't want to hear that word boring. You don't need to be entertained. The world is so fascinating. Figure it out for yourself. Somebody told my wife and I one of the best things you can do when you have little kids, more parenting advice, is put, get a playpen and put your kid in that playpen and let them alone to themselves for a couple hours at a time. It's good for them. Where most parents feel their job is to entertain those kids all day long and they're exhausted. Then when those kids grow up, they want to be entertained more. Then when they get to high school, they want to be entertained more. And if they don't have something stimulating them, they're bored as if it's the worst crime in history. So boring. But what we've done is we've created consumers who need to be stimulated all day long. And I think it starts young, as if my job is to make sure life is fun. And we've failed to realize when you stop and look, the world is amazing. It's amazing. As this uh, has been a verse that's been sticking with me the last couple years. And it's a very simple verse, actually. You'll know this verse. But I think it puts both of these concepts together and it's this. This is, this is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Why should we rejoice and be glad in it? Because we're not dead yet. Because we can. Because we can. Second reason is because we don't deserve it. You go out there on a crisp day and the snow just fell and you see all of the trees that are caked with white icing of snow and you breathe in and the air is clean. What a gift that is. Third reason, I think, because there are people that are under oppression. They are under the arrogant totalitarianism of others and they are stifled. When Michelle and I lived in Russia, they would turn your water off every other day. Why? Because they wanted to. You are in freedom. Enjoy that freedom. It's amazing. And then the fourth reason I'd say, and this is a very important one, is because 
why should we rejoice and be glad is because people are attracted to Jesus through joy and not through religious rigidity. People are not attracted to Jesus by stiff Christians who have starched collars and a nice tie and they are morally good. Great, fine, you're good. But but to enjoy God? Well, what does that even mean? Because it's joy that makes you love Christ. One another thing my wife has really done, I really appreciate about her, is um, our kids, when they're small, when they were dancing or having a good time, if the other kids would get mad at them or stop them, we'd say, let Jasmine dance, okay? Get off her case. Stop stealing people's joy. Stop always making problems. So that's two observations. One question, two observations, and I have one warning. Based on the last two verses. Look at the last two verses of Matthew 13. So then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere, except in his own household among his own family. And so, he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief. All right, you're not that amazed with me? I'll stop the amazement. There is something about when we are not in awe of Jesus that is offensive to God. It is offensive to God to be offended by his son. Or you could say it like this. It is the highest of offense to not value the beauty of Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of bad sins, but I would say if you really read Scripture, I think the highest offense is not giving God glory. And the opposite of giving God glory is taking offense. So when you take offense at his son, when you get bored with his son, when you demand from his son more than he's already given you, it's really offensive to the living God. These people in this story were able to have the Son of God in the flesh before their very eyes, and they were offended. That is a crime. You could say, are we not just as guilty? We have the Word of God. We have freedom. We have heat. Doesn't it feel good to have heat in here? Oh, we have heat. We did in a couple days, and it was bad, you know, bad. Oh, we have heat. It's nice. You don't even notice it. It's great. Love it. We have our health. And still, many of us sit in rage and grumpiness and complaining. And those who are offended, according to this, should not expect blessing. In return. So you're angry at God and you pray, why don't you answer my prayers? Why should he answer your prayers? Seriously, why should he? Do you, do you behold, enjoy his wonder? What he's already done for you? I, this is one of my, uh, this is a parable. You've probably heard me tell it, but I tell it because to me it's, thing that makes the most sense of what I'm trying to say, and I think it will wrap this whole section up. 
And I think it's a good, I, I, I think in pictures, how I think. And the story is about this king, and let's say he lives in Portugal, and Portugal is the far west side of Europe, and the Atlantic Ocean hits up against Portugal. So you have this king who once, this is back in the ancient times, wants to go explore the new land. So he gets a ship ready, gets 20 passengers on that ship, and he wants it to go across the Atlantic to the new world and explore it. And he asked them to bring back gold and spices and wood Tobacco, bring it all back. So he gets this crew ready, and he said, we will do that, king. They get, on the, they get on the ship, and they say, who is the captain? The king says, well, my son is the captain of the ship. They said, okay, your son's the captain of the ship. So the son takes the helm, and they start heading out to the waters, and the son tells people when to swab the deck. The son tells, tells the, the sailors when to raise the sails. The son tells the sailors... Their different tasks and chores so they can get there smoothly and in peace. But the sailors are tired of the sun's leadership. They're tired of it because they want to have a fun trip. They don't want to hoist the sails. Sometimes they just want to sleep and they want to drink rum all day long. So they decide to mutiny against the sun. That night while the sun is sleeping in the quarters underneath the ship, Ten guys grab him, tie up his legs, put some cannonballs around his ankles, lift him up, hoist him over to the side of the ship, and drop him in the water. Splash. And down the sun sinks to the bottom of the Atlantic. And they say, whew, we're done with him. Let's have a good time. Let's take our time. So they take their time. The deck's a little dirtier. Sometimes they swab it. Sometimes they go fast, but... Nobody really wants to lead because nobody wants to be thrown in the lake and the ocean again. And they finally make it to the new land, and they do find gold, and they find all kind of stuff, and they enjoy their time there. They party a lot, you know, and some of the, some of the sailors say, but I miss my family. I want to go home. Oh, all right, let's go home. So they get the boat ladled with all the goods. They get back on the boat, and they start sailing back. About a couple days out, they're like, so our families are going to be there. The king's there. We want to look good. So let's really swab the deck. Let's hoist the sails. And let's make everything look good. And let's do our duties so we can look presentable when we get there. All right. Let's be good on the way back. Sounds good. That day, they're getting close to shore. And out the shore is a pier where the boat is. And they've got the whole town is out there. But on the very edge of the pier is the king in a throne waiting. And one guy takes a glass and looks out and says, my family's there, everybody's waiting, I can't wait to see them. They put on their sharp navy outfits, they're pressed white, the deck is swabbed clean, the sails are unfurled, the Portugal flag is out, and as they get close to shore, the band is playing music, and they're so excited. They dock the boat, and the king stands up. And he asks one question. What, what did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? What did you do with his son? Oh, 
oh, I've lived a good life. I've lived my own life. No, 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 that's not the question. What did you do with his son? As you make your trip back to heaven, what did you do with the greatest person who's ever lived on this earth? But I look good. I look good. I don't care. The Son of God died for you so you could have freedom. What did you do with that? Or were you offended by him? Because he got a little too close to home and he wanted me to change my life. He wanted me to swab the decks and hoist the sail. I don't want to do it his way, okay? I just have to warn you. God is holy. And he sits on a throne that is pure. And he melts mountains with his breath. He shakes whole galaxies with his voice. I'd hate to hear him ask you in his voice that's like a thousand waterfalls, what did you do with my son? I'm going to close us in prayer, and I'm going to have Dana close us in a song. But let's consider that. If you've never accepted Christ, that's one of our objectives is to say this, what we're saying, it's, it's true, it's real. We don't want you to be like this town folk who just had contempt because of their arrogance. We want you to embrace Christ, because once you do, man, grace flows, flows. He's so good.